I'd say that people generally are probably as, you know, the conditions are as present, but people are much more open to, to finding a solution now. And so there's a gap, there's a supply gap. It's very simply that. And, and part of it is manufactured because of stringent processes uh, to, to get licensed and, and the bureaucracy around that. And, and the other part of it is probably just there's, there's no interest of, you know, to, for, for, for people to take up that profession for one reason or the other. Welcome to episode 13 of our podcast. We have a very special episode for you today. We're talking to a very dear friend who we've known and previously worked with for a long time. Fahira Sandur, welcome to our podcast. It's great to finally have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a great pleasure and honor, and I look forward to speaking to you about what I'm building and, and the mental health tech space in general. So we've, we've known you for the longest time as an investor, one of the very first few in the region. And today, as you said, we're hosting you as a founder. Um, so maybe let's start with some background um, and then kind of trace that up until today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been in, in venture capital for about seven years. I started out investing in sort of seed stage companies in the Middle East doing smaller checks, about 250K checks through an entity called Mina Venture Investments that eventually sort of was, was the precursor to Wanda Capital that uh, some of the listeners might be familiar with, which was a, uh, a fund that was raised in 2015. And that's when I started working much more closely with uh, Khaled, obviously, and, and Sarah, who were, who were part of the Wanda Capital team. Uh, I've known you, Stephanie, obviously for much longer than that since I've been working on, on the Wanda platform, mostly doing mentorship events and, and conferences and, and the blog that is Wanda.com. Uh, the, the fund deployed uh, its, its capital relatively quickly. So I think it took us three and a half years. And uh, when the decision was taken to not raise another fund, I sort of took a step back and thought, you know, it's, I'm, 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 I'm keen on, you know, I'm young enough. I want to explore alternative paths to my career. And I've always had an itch to, to build something a bit more, to get more involved operationally and build something for myself. So, yeah, uh, you know, when the decision was made not to raise another fund, I thought, you know, it's, it's probably the right time. That's a good cue for me to, to maybe be more proactive with, with regards to my career and, and, and start something that, uh, start, start a business in, in a field that, that that's very dear to me. And naturally, that's that's the mental health space. So since the beginning of this year, I approached a very renowned uh, and dear friend, uh, renowned psychologist and dear friend, Dr. Naif Al-Mutawar, who's one of the leading Khaliji and, you know, Kuwaiti and Khaliji psychologists, uh, about, you know, just generally just getting his thoughts on, on launching a business in this space. And, you know, fast forward, Eight nine months now, ten, or eleven months now, I guess. Uh, you know, we're we're eleven employees in, and uh, about two weeks away from from Beta launching our our platform, which which we'll speak more about in a minute. And uh, yeah, it's that's it's it's been a, a journey uh, to say the least. And uh, the you know, the the skill set that uh, I picked up during investing is is very different to the skill set required. To run and operate a business and, and build a team. Uh, yeah. It, and and so, 
Yeah, I'm happy to speak more to that as well if you want me to. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because you've seen it from the opposite side of the spectrum. And so your experience now launching a company and, and, and seeing what skills are required to execute and um, and really also source the right talent, I think it's a, it's a different set of skills. And I know we were talking about it the other day. Yes, um, I think the primary difference for me at least is the mindset when launching a business is is mostly for the most part, at least in my case, has mostly been around team building and, and how to build and retain talent. Whereas in the investment space, it was a lot more, okay, here's the core team. And, uh, you know, let's think about how, how to source a deal flow. I guess they're, they're similar in a way, but they're a little bit different. They're similar in the sense that they're both fundamentally sales jobs, right? So as an investor, you want to sell your fund uh, to to entrepreneurs and, and you know the, the sort of the exceptional talent to to come and take your money with a startup you want to sell your vision and and get people to believe in the fact that the equity they'll get or you know the the, the company they're they're joining is going to be worth a lot more down the line and and believe in the vision and 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 sort of commit their time in, into this thing so they are similar in a way but with with a startup, it never stops. That's it's just constantly trying to think of how to acquire talent and retain talent. And I think, as as you're well aware, and you, and you're you're much more versed into that now, is is that funding landscape in the region has changed dramatically over the past couple of years. There's you know the region's flush with capital now, and and there's great founders out there. Yes, there's an increase in capital. But there's also an increase in, in, in founders who are sort of qualified and solid to raise money. So what ends up happening is, you know, salaries naturally start to go up. So for a startup like mine, that's not in a quote-unquote sexy space like fintech or in a hyper-growth space. Uh, it might be difficult to attract talent. Uh, but it's also sort of there's two sides to that coin is because I know that the kind of talent that we're attracting is very much into the mission and vision and not necessarily just in it for the hyper growth kind of mindset. So, so it's a bit different. It's a different caliber. And, and we position ourselves as that very deliberately in order to attract that talent that's not necessarily out to chase a, a hyper growth company and, and the culture changes altogether. And, and, and that's fundamental. So usually people go from operating to investing. Yeah. And they have a, you know, they have to kind of shift uh, their mindset to think about things very differently. Obviously, you, you did it in reverse. You, you started investing uh, and now you're kind of shifting to, you've shifted now to operating. What's the hardest part of that? What's, what's I mean, what's, what's the, okay, let me ask a different way maybe. What's the hardest part of the change in mindset? And then what is something that is welcome as a change as well? What's the best part of that change? Yeah. So I think for me, fundamentally, I, I, I started investing, but, but I joined you guys. So, so you, Khalid, you had, you'd started working on Wanda Capital before me. And, and, and you know, yeah, Steph was there with Wanda and then uh, Sara was there with Wanda Capital. I think I, I came into an environment that was somewhat already there, to, if, if that makes sense. So there wasn't so sort of this like building. mean like set up, more set up yeah, already. Yeah, yeah set up yeah. sort of, you know, you know, the, the, 
there's an implicit culture to that. You might not see it when you're there, but but it's already the foundation is there somewhat, right? And then the the one the brand was there. There was okay. It was relatively easy to kind of join in and 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 quick start, you know, kickstart my learning process and picking up on that skill set. That maybe in hindsight, it, it was 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 sort of that cushioning was, was a critical experience. Whereas with this, um, the hardest part is it's effectively what I'm trying to say is it's lonely. Right, so okay. you know, it's, the onus is on is on me or, or me and my co-founder and I. If it was now, we have another co-founder who joined. But at the time, the onus was on us to basically put it all together and and pitch it and, and present it first and foremost to ourselves, buy into what we're doing ourselves, and then sell what we're doing to 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 talent and and convince them that this is the right thing for them to do. And it is lonely when when that's when when that when that's the case, it, it tends to get very lonely. Uh, because you know, uh, and it, and it's kind of frankly damaging to the ego sometimes, or, or a bit painful when when you get rejections. With Wanda at the time, we were a blue chip fund, right? And it, it was very easy. I don't say it was easy for us to get deal flows. Our name preceded us. Our reputation preceded us. With this, I sort of you know, I was speaking to some people. They don't really know. They're like, okay, you know, what do you know about the space? Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure. Even suppliers we were speaking with to work with us. We're on the fence, you know, they were sending us outrageous codes because they didn't necessarily believe in what we were doing. So I guess it's the lonely component, the loneliness of, of having to build it all is is the biggest change for me. I mean, the difference, I guess, is I, this is not like necessarily an investing thing versus operating thing, but, you know, the, you know, like almost like the, the safety net is off. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yes. And this this is despite the fact that I came into this with with financing, you know, well financed, you know, we came into this with 750k dollars, and you know, we quickly raised another 500k from our from our immediate family and friends. So this is, you know, I can only imagine what it's like for those who don't have access to that sort of capital from the start. So it makes me appreciate that sort of step all all the more. Uh, we still we've spoken to a few. Um, people who are in our portfolio who used to be investors and they um, started seeing investors in a different light once they've become uh, founders. The way like investors are looking at milestones, for example, or not seeing the bigger picture from within the company. Do you, do you think that's true? Do you think that being on the other side makes the investor that they look more at like milestones and more at like higher, bigger picture things rather than the like intricates of the business? Yeah. I think that's a great, great question. And I think, um, it, okay, first of all, I haven't started fundraising yet formally, but I, so, so my, my experience in that sense is, is comparing my present situation to hindsight and just anecdotal data of what's going on around me or anecdotal examples. Um, but fundamentally, I think, um, I, I think there's two, two ways to look at this. I think that's it is necessarily in my case at least a good thing to have uh, someone like that on the cap table because to me it reminds it honestly reminds it would remind someone like me of you know what the what the ultimate objective and purpose is right and having that sort of be, because I'm in the weeds every day and 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 sort of I get bogged down in in, in sometimes mundane processes and administrative work I would appreciate someone who would constantly kind of remind me of the bigger picture sort of milestones that, that I need to hit in order, for, in order for this to grow. So I think that's a good thing, at least in my case. Um, having said that, I also, 
even more so now start to understand why entrepreneurs are selective with regards to who they raise money from. Because from an investor's perspective, it might seem like, yes, all investors want the same thing. They want returns. But the way investors handle their portfolio companies, be they the ones that perform or underperform uh, or outperform or underperform or is just kind of average, uh, makes the world of a difference to the morale uh, of, of a founder. So, you know, having a founder-friendly VC is, as cliche or as cheesy or whatever as that may sound, I fully understand what that means now and I fully respect that. Uh, it's 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 critical, you know. As I go out to fundraise, that that'll probably be, you know, if if I'm privileged enough to be able to select my investors, I'll probably select based on purely that, not nothing. Yeah, at least for the first two rounds of financing, you know, at at growth, maybe the you know the game changes, but at first, I just kind of need someone who who's there and who understands that, you know, this you know we're all taking a risk together, sort of a thing, and and not look at not look at what we're doing as, as a, as a number. So I think that I, but, but I do, I would respect, I would appreciate having an investor on board precisely because they would, they would want to focus on the bigger picture. Yeah. 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 Anna, I've, uh, one thing like Anna, I've never operated the business, business as an actual operating company besides like a investment company, which is not the same thing at all. Do you feel like when we, when you're on the investing side, you you kind of like constantly looking at business models and it's rewarding in its own way because you, you're exposed to so much, but at the same time, never get deep into something. And Hala, you just said something really interesting, which is like you get into the weeds and stuff. Do you feel that trade-off day to day that you're really deep into something and it's, it's one more rewarding than the other or different experience than the other? I mean, the stress level as an investor, frankly, is way less. Not saying that the workload is less necessarily, but the stress level is a bit different. And with regards to kind of looking at business models, I think that I, I do appreciate that and respect that. And I think that's super valuable. And that helps that ability to look at different business models as an investor and see what has worked and what hasn't worked has helped tremendously our ability to put together our roadmap. And uh, I think that's, that that's probably the you know super helpful. So the way we approach stage one, stage two, stage three, and and particularly stage framing, because because ultimately what what an entrepreneur does is 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 frame their story vis-a-vis an investor, and the investor then looks at that and says, yes, I buy this. I buy the way you frame this story, or no, I don't buy the way you frame this story. And that's why you got a big discrepancy between profitable businesses who aren't able to fundraise versus high burning businesses who are who are just flush with cash. It's just a framing question. So, so, so that I respect the fact that a, an investor's ability to see things through a particular frame because of experience looking at different business models has helped me a lot in framing the way I want to go about building this business or you know, the way we want to go about building this business. So that, that's, that's a skill that, that I find super helpful. And I think others on the team also appreciate. Uh, other operators on the team appreciate who haven't been investors. Uh, on the flip side, you know, I think your credibility is way different. I mean, when you talk to talent, they respect that you're an investor, but they, they, it's sort of like, you know, they operate on their own network. Uh, you know, the, the talent speaks to other talent and it matters where you worked before, which startup, who your boss was. And as, a, as an investor, you really, you know, you, you only know the co-founders, maybe, maybe some of the other C-level executives, but you don't know the more junior people who run these. 
businesses and, and these people don't necessarily find much credibility in the fact that you were an investor. I mean, they, they appreciate the fact that you can bring money to the table, but they, yeah, it's, it's, it's different in that sense. So they're, they're two parallel networks. And as an investor, I assume that they kind of work together and are intermeshed, but in reality, they're, they're, they run in parallel to each other. They're not, they don't overlap much. Yeah. Let's talk about the, the mental health space. So it feels like it's like generally mental health is a topic that's still somewhat stigmatized um, in our societies. And perhaps our relationship with mental health is still a little bit complicated. Um, but did you feel that there's been a change in perception when it comes to um, treating or addressing mental health in the region? Uh, no, not necessarily in the region, probably more so in the West. Uh, I don't think we've quite hit that inflection point in the region. This is, again, anecdotal. I don't think there's there's anything particularly, um, there's no noteworthy sort of event or, or, you know, instance that points to the fact that, yes, we are more open to it mm. or more open to discussing it. I think... Um, it's a bit difficult to, to, to assess. I think, I think one area to, to watch out for is the natural uh, path in the Khalij, uh, at least, and, and maybe in, elsewhere in the region, but specifically in the Khalij and specifically in Saudi, the natural path for someone with, with, with symptoms of a mental health disorder in, of any nature, be it your garden variety, depression, anxiety, or something more severe like bipolar, schizophrenia, they'd go to a sheikh, right? Yeah. And, and, and that's their natural mode. I think now what's happening with this new generation is they're being called out for that. And there's podcasts that are very popular, like the Wijdan podcast, uh, by the Mike's Network, that just basically just calls these people out uh, and, and sheds light stories on, on people who want the alternative path, you know, the more sort of scientific path of psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, clinics, institutions, and how that's been super effective for them. And I think that's, you know, I, I'd look towards that shift and a natural path of, of where you would go to get support from as, as an indication that this region is ready for, say, a more scientific approach to, to addressing mental health rather than a more, you know, either superstitious or religious or, or traditional approach. It feels like there's very little data on, on the space in general. So anything like reports of uh, um, rise in anxiety across a, a particular population or a number of therapists available per 100,000 prospective patients. So it's really hard to get an idea of, of, of where we stand. Um, and generally, it feels like there's very little supply of qualified therapists. Uh, right. Is that something that you've seen as well? Big time. Um, so I do have some stats. So I think the Arab world is, is um, probably one of the most under-researched in the region when it comes to sort of academic research and mental health. We've contributed just under 1% of mental health uh, publications globally 2009 to 2018. The population is closer to 5 or 6% of the global population. So we do underrepresent there. Country-level data is a bit more readily available than sort of regional data, but then again, those don't necessarily come from academic sources. They come from ministries of health or maybe the WHO, which don't necessarily tend to be the most accurate or the most academic in, in their process. So 
we are under research. Very difficult to know for sure, you know, for certain, you know, what's our ratio, you know, how many psychologists do we have, how many are qualified, how many are clinically qualified, how many are therapists who are, you know, who are or counselors or coaches. Um, and and the, the process to get licensed as, say, a clinical psychologist is different in any any one of those those countries, uh, even within the, the GCC. So, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to tell. I mean, the WHO have data from 2016 that I'll quickly go go over um, if that's of interest. So, in terms of psych- psychiatrists, in 2016, the US had 10.5 psychiatrists per hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Norway had 48. No surprise, out of 100,000. Japan had 11 for each 100,000. India had 0.3 for each 100,000. In Saudi, there was 1.3. So that's a tenth of the USA. Egypt is 1.6 and the UA is 1.6. So we're far behind, uh, you know, more developed countries like the USA and Japan, let alone Norway. But we are a little bit ahead of, of countries like India. In terms of psychologists, the US has 30 psychologists per 100,000. That's three times as many psychiatrists as they have. Norway has 73. Japan has three. So Japan tends to tend to you know, focus more on the psychiatry component. India has 0.07 uh, psychologists. So Saudi has two. So a little bit more than they do on a, on a like-for-like basis relative to psych, um, psychiatrists. UE has 0.7, far less. And Egypt has 0.256. So we're far behind. I mean, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to 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 be done on on that front uh, in terms of in terms of that that component. I think a lot of what needs to be done is, you know, concept of psychiatry, psychology. Yes, they're I want to say they're relatively Western, just just for a lack of a, a better way of framing it. But uh, yeah. a lot a lot that can be done before we get into that in the region is sort of awareness, advocacy, uh, community, just building a community and providing content, sort of the, the you know, 1.0 of, of mental health is and then, you know, awareness and that sort of a thing. So that's, that's, where, that's where things should start. So just, just as, as an example, so if you look at, you know, this is self-reported by Google, uh, you know, Arabic Google searches for how to improve my mental health have grown by 1,100% in the past five years. Wow. That peaked last August. And interest in the Arabic word for therapist at a 10-year high in the same month. So, yes, they're, 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 I don't think, and, and, and if you compare that to things like uh, searches like al-araq or al-ihbat or al-tawattur, that hasn't yeah. changed. So what has changed is people want to improve and people want to look for therapists. So people are as, I, I'd say that people generally are probably as, you know, the conditions are as present, but people are much more open to, to finding a solution now. And so there's a gap, there's a supply gap. It's very simply that. And, and part of it is manufactured because of stringent processes uh, to, to get licensed and, and bur- the bureaucracy around that. And, and the other part of it is probably just there's, there's no interest of, you know, to, for, for, for people to take up that profession for one reason or the other. That is... Um... Like, good one. How, like, why do you think now is a good time to get into this uh, business? Like, how did you get into starting this business and why did you choose uh, mental health specifically? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, uh, I think why now is partly what I just mentioned. I mean, you're, you're hitting sort of an inflection point post-COVID uh, of general global awareness. There's there's a lot more interest in this space. There, it's a lot, becoming a lot more normalized. Uh 
with regards to why now, um, it's a bit incidental for me, but also I'd say there's no better time than now to start a business because I do think that the region is, you know, is 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 blessed with 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 capital that's ready to move uh, towards more risky ventures, and I think uh, and it's the right time to sort of raise money, get enough cushion to to, to test out different models, to test out different you know business models and different offerings, and, and see what sticks and 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 scale that. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, it's, it's a combination of, of both, uh, interest in, in, in uh, interest in self-help as well as seeking, uh, you know, therapist help or psychiatrist help, as well as just timing. I think that's, it's just those two, the combination of those two things is, is, is why. So tell us more about what you're building. Yeah. So, uh, at Tuhun, where, you know, our vision is to make the Arab world a happier and healthier place, fundamentally. Uh, and and we're all aligned sort of as a team around that around that vision, and we want to do so by incorporating a research driven and evidence based approach to our offerings. Uh, and and we do want to become the leading mental health platform and community in the region by providing culturally relevant, affordable, and scalable tools and services to 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 Arabs fundamentally, because that's that's our core market. And we're going to start with the Khalij to do that. And if you notice, at the core of, of what I mentioned is, is building the leading platform and community. Community aspect is very critical. And there's a reason why, why we want to focus on building the community to start. And the reason is, not to get too scientific about it, but if, you know, we know that people are hungry for this sort of content, right? We know it just, just because of, you know, the way people have responded to our soft launch via social media, but also because of other communities that are launching. And people are hungry for content in this space, but at the same time, uh, you know, th- there's not that much of it. So there's a gap there. But also because having a, co- having a community as the core of our business allows us to, u- to, to tap into that community readily and test out different business models. Uh, so one component is building the, uh, the, the content offering that, 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 uh, that we're building that's very similar to Headspace and Calm, sort of a meditation app that provides uh, meditation, hypnotherapy, sleep stories, and, and, and different sorts of content. But eventually, if we want to go down to, you know, offering therapy or offering services through e-commerce, uh, you know, and, and we can get more into that later, having a core community effectively allows us to do that in a relatively cheap and affordable manner. And because customer acquisition costs would be would be relatively low, so that's because the community is there, and, and we've built the brand, and we've built sort of trust around that brand. So the community component is very important, and that's what we're focused on during the first stage of uh, of of Tuhun. That's the name of the of the company, by the way. I forgot to mention that. So Tuhun in Arabic is as in Hanat Betuhun, Hanat Tuhun. Which means, it, in, I guess, in English, you can translate it somewhat to to it gets better. And during the start, what we want to do is we are focused on two two pain points. We're focused on sleep and stress. The reason we're focused on those two pain points is if we look back at Headspace and Calm, so 2017, 2017, 2018, 2015 to 2017, 2018, you could say Headspace was ahead of the game. They were the first. They were 2018, 2017, 2018 onwards. Calm just hit an inflection point and completely, you know, shot past headspace. 
Yeah. And most people kind of attribute, if, if you do the, if you look at some of the anecdotal research online, they say the reason for that is the content was very similar. The value proposition for Headspace was meditate and sort of it'll improve your life. I, f- I forget what the, what the tagline was. Or, you know, meditate as a, life, as a problem to life, as a solution to life's problems. People don't generally just go around walking the street saying, if only I had, you know, this thing that can help me solve my life's problems. It's not how it works. Calm, on the other hand, very specific. They're like, we're going to focus on sleep because it's sort of a sub, sort of, sort of, it, it spans across different mental health conditions, but also because it's, it's a problem that most, you know, many people share. It's very yeah. identifiable. It's very clear. It's a very clear pain point. Uh, also, you know, there's not that much taboo. You know, if you don't sleep, it's, it's very different than saying I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling anxious or I have, you know, I am depressed or I am, I am anxious, right? I, I'm going through anxiety. Sleep is sort of a safe thing that people can, you know, won't necessarily mind associating. So sleep and stress and stress, the reason for stress is it allows us to go down the B2B route. And if you look at the growth of Headspace and Calm and, and most other mental health platforms that you see in the region, yeah, sorry, uh, uh, globally, globally, the, the next, the, the wave of growth for them has been B2B. B, B2C, you know, customer churn is, has, has been absurd for these guys. And, and B2B has, has proven to be an effective uh, growth avenue for them. It's, you know, cost efficient. It's, it's uh, you know, the acquisition costs are much lower. Retention is much higher. And, and, and sort of these lump sum of payments help, help with cash flow, I guess. So we do want to focus on B2B partly for that reason. We don't want to ignore B2C. We think of ourselves as B2B2C because the end, end users, the end consumers is an individual. Um, but B2B allows us to sort of prove our value proposition and, and demonstrate early success much easier than, than B2C. B2C would be very costly to start. We'd have to build different personas, go and target different personas, validate that. So we are going B2B to start alongside B2C, but, uh, but B2B is, is why we're doing stress and sleep is because, you know, it's, it's a pain point that many people share who have mental health conditions. It's interesting because it feels like generally those that have um, been more specific about their approach, like you said, so it could be sleep, it could be uh, brain empowerment and things like that tend to um, tend to kind of emerge as some of the winners globally in the space. Uh, what do you mean by that? So rather than, you know, just the general marketplaces of kind of matching you with a, uh, with yeah, a therapist, yeah, okay. yes, right? Yes, okay. it, yeah. yeah. So do you, what, what do you think is, a, aside from having a clearer value proposition, what do you think are some of the key drivers behind what we've seen in the last few years in mental health globally? Ah, okay, that's a very good question. So there's an article written on the Union Square Ventures blog called Mental Health 3.0. I think it was written last year. And, you know, it's, it's a three-part uh, you know, piece or whatever, but, you know, article I think about the 1.0 of mental health, which is in-person, human-to-human care. You know, it's not very scalable. It's good. It's decent. It works, you know, for those who can afford it. There's insurance problems. 2.0 is more human-to-human care delivered digitally. So you've seen that with other marketplaces uh, globally as well, is they just take something offline and make it online, right? And if and if you remember, you know, for those who remember Yemek Sepeti in the region, is, is it was the same. It was offline delivery just through an app. There wasn't more to it. It's the same thing with these mental health platforms. 2.0 is they just take the 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 an existing offline experience and make it online. The 3.0 is is where the interesting part comes in. Is it's fully digital, and I think uh, the FDA 
um, has approved digital therapeutics, has licensed, so has a digital therapeutics strap. And I think since, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, since 2017, uh, 35 to 40 uh, digital therapeutics applications have been approved by the FDA. So naturally, you can imagine that drives a lot of funding to the space. And by digital therapeutics, what is meant is it's fully digital care. There's no human involved on the other end, right? So it could be AI, it could be sort of self-care, it could be whatnot. But when the FDA approves it, basically the FDA is saying these this thing or this treatment or this this avenue is as effective as things we've seen, you know, elsewhere, even more effective. Um, and so and so that's that's sort of the three point two. And I think there there's a couple of other pillars. So the the other pillar is, I think the the, the financing you've seen go towards some of these platforms like Calm and Headspace and, and some of the other ones like BetterHelp and and whatnot has given a lot of confidence that you know this business model does generally work, uh, right? So it's sort of Self-help, if you want, works, but also online therapy works generally, uh, for the most part, and allows allows this 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 avenue to scale. Interest in, in the domain has has grown on the corporate side. So uh, I think if you look at um, you know Crunchbase, you know always uh, uh, and not a CB Insights. So I usually have very interesting reports and. And they go back to 2016, and they say mentions mentions in earning calls mentions. During earning calls of the word mental health, 13, 15, 25, blah, 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 all the way up into 2020, it jumped from 34 in early 2020 to 150 by the summer. Wow. So corporates started to mention this as critical. Like it just literally hit a Jacob. And, and I think corporates now realize, at least in the West, that this is something that, that's of critical importance. So naturally that drives money, right? If, if the corporation pays for it, so, so then it drives money. And I think the third and, and probably the most interesting and probably the most important avenue uh, to, to keep an eye on is, is what's going on with, with psychedelics and, and psilocybin, uh, right? So, yeah. so this, is, this, is, this is sort of being hailed as, I guess, the, the, you know, the psychedelic. There's an article written on, on, on The Guardian called The Psychedelics Renaissance, and it's being called sort of, it, this is the penicillin moment for mental health. So in, in a sense that people are going to look back and they're going to say, was this pre-psilocybin or was it post-psilocybin? In the same way that people are going to look at, at physical health and say, was this pre-sort uh, 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 of a penicillin or post-penicillin? So pre-penicillin, everything was sort of patchwork. Success rate was very low of most things. If you get infected, good luck. Post-penicillin, it's the other way around. So, so it's like, if you don't get treated, then there must be other underlying conditions or, or whatnot. Uh, and, it's, it's, and, and psilocybin is, the, the stats around psilocybin, so just off the top of my head, you know, 70 or 80% impact on, on general, you know, uh, persistent, uh, treatment-resistant depression. The best SSRIs or SNRIs, which are the more conventional antidepressants, have a success rate of about 30 to 40 percent, with another 30 to 40 percent staying the same. So you can imagine what that means. And and that research started, to be frank, in the 50s. But, you know, during Nixon's era, had stopped because of the taboo around sort of counterculture. But it's picking up again now. And you have publicly listed companies like Cyber and and Compass Pathways, who are multi-billion dollar businesses now. And or in sta- almost, all, you know, almost in stage four clinical trials. So it's almost there. Uh, it's a stone's throw away of, of being widespread. And I really honestly can't wait for that moment to happen because that's, 
not not to belittle what's ha- what's happening on the psychology front or the psychiatry front today or self-help or whatnot or whatnot because I think that's very valuable but that's going to be an inflection point that's going to be you know everything prior to that was bandaged stuff you know for the most part and everything after that is you know real sort of rewiring your neural pathways type treatment so do you think that's going to how it'll come to this part of the world quickly or will it, will there be some kind of cultural block or will just the minute it's kind of it'll move quick I don't think so I think Yeah, I, th- I think it'll come. I think if the FDA approves it and it starts to become more widespread and proves its efficacy, I mean, I think that's yeah. I mean, it's we're not sort of. Yeah. I mean, people are conservative, but they're not sort of delusional about w- what that means. And if these, by the way, um, the, the the drugs, the, the psilocybin drugs that are being researched aren't necessarily hallucinogenic. In fact, there's an entire domain within psilocybin drug research that's focused on developing a molecule that's that's uh, non-hallucinogenic psilocybin. Yeah, isolated, yeah. yeah. Yes. So so it's not they're not necessarily correlated, right? Yeah. I was reading um book recently to, uh, uh, the uh, the guy's name is Michael Pollan. He wrote a book on yeah, caffeine. Of yeah, and yeah, how, like, of course, caffeine, of caffeine has changed the world really in the 16th yeah. century. Right, of um, course. And that allowed for industrialization and, and you know, yeah, yeah. people moved away from alcohol as the main yep. kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, social, yeah, yeah. social beverage to, yeah. or beverage in general, because nobody drank water, right? Yeah, <laughs> to, to, exactly. To, bo- to boiling water and drinking coffee, and that kind of allowed all this productivity. Can you see yeah. that kind of happening? Something like a big societal shift not, uh, outside of the realms of psychology? Because of like, the changes in psilocybin. I mean, I, I'd go as far as saying, you know, I don't, I don't want to, obviously I'm not an expert. By the way, I'm not an expert in this field. This is stuff that I just do as a hobbyist huh. or enthusiast. I'm not, I'm not versed in this in the way, the way he is. So Expert to us now. If I, I need, yeah, you know. I guess, huh. yeah. yeah. Um, start sounding like one at least. <laughs> Um, so, so I think uh, I'd go as far as saying, you know, when these things become wide, widespread, and if and if they're as effective as they claim to be in, in you know these promising early clinical trials, stuff like depression and anxiety could be diseases of the past. I mean, I could envision a scenario where 30 years down the line, you know, depression is as much a bygone as polio is, right? And it's just not not present. So other stuff will emerge. Yes, there's other other conditions that are much more serious like schizophrenia, you know, different psychotic episodes, bipolar disorder, that sort of a thing that's that's a bit different. But I think you're sort of, again, garden variety, depression, anxiety, if this thing is as effective as they claim it to be, then I think mental health uh, disorders in the future will look very different than what they are, than what they are today. So So, so, so sort of, sort of, it, you kind of leapfrog, you know, it's again with technologies about leapfrogging. It's not about linear. It's not about having more psychologists or psycho- psychiatrists anymore at that point. Right. So yeah. let's not think of this linearly at that point. It's about, you know, can you get this drug out there fast enough? And then can you go through one or two generations of gen of, of genetic sort of, you know, passing down genes without depression or anxiety so that it's not as prevalent, you know, and, Yes, the science behind whether or not this is a genetic, you know, genetic, uh, these are genetic disorders is out there. But but assume for the sake of the assumption that, you know, you go through one or two generations where that's not as prevalent, then, you know, who's who's to say what mental health conditions would look like then? So it's not it's not about necessarily having more psychologists or psychiatrists only. 
and not necessarily about funding, the funding going towards that, but it's also about, you know, funding ways to, to leapfrog the need for that altogether. So... Yeah, that's a very interesting take, actually. Where do you think mental health is heading next? I mean, we've seen um, some of the platforms offer like chat-based AI. Um, where do you see it going next? Is there like a metaverse play as well? Uh, there could be. I mean, I know for panic attacks and PTSD, a lot of what's what's being done is, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of exposure therapy, but... Yeah. Um, a lot of what's happening on that front is sort of get someone, get someone with VR, you know, get, you know, build a simulation or whatever, and put, put VR, you know, get them to wear VR glasses and, and give them exposure therapy to any scenario that they have a phobia towards, or if it's a PTSD scenario, and you know, sort of gradually reintroducing them to that environment where they, where they do feel anxious or they, 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 they've experienced a past trauma and expose them through that. And I think that that's a very interesting uh, avenue as well. Again, the stuff going on on, on the psychedelics front is very interesting. The brain stimulation therapies are very interesting, like TMS uh, is, 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 you know, is proving to be somewhat effective as well. So different things going on. I think, again, that will not negate the need for your more conventional sort of content plays called Headspace self-help because there are people, you know, still a taboo to kind of go and seek globally uh, to take meds or whatnot, or, 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 you know, go and do different forms of treatment unless you're in more severe conditions. But the metaverse, I'm not so sure. Um, probably more of the VR, the VR side of things, AI sort of chatbots. I don't know. I'm a lot of funding going towards that, but I'm, I'm still a bit skeptical. Um, I think a lot of these digital therapeutics plays where they get the need for a human altogether, sort of, especially around more more easily scalable uh, treatment plans like cognitive behavioral therapy that you can kind of almost program into a machine. I think you can you can negate the rather than the more sort of psychodynamic therapy where you go into your childhood and and look into background stuff stuff like that. I think that's that that's that's that could be interesting. And and finally, I think. You know, as with anything else with tech, it's about bundling and unbundling. And at this point, it's about unbundling. So very condition-specific treatments. So you see a lot of funding going towards, you know, Asperger's syndrome. You see a lot of funding going towards bipolar-specific uh, solutions. You see a lot of funding going towards schizophrenia-specific, depression-specific, panic attack-specific. So it's not about having everything on there altogether. It's about unbundling that offering and focusing on specific sort of pain points and, and offering them, uh, offering each of those pain points or those conditions and a, a platform in and of themselves. So going, going deep rather than going wide. Do you think, uh, just I think in the, in the interest of time quickly to discuss, um, do you think that the insurance companies will get in on mental health? Because I know today it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, so the, the burden of payment is... And let's put the region aside for a second, because I don't think we're there yet, but definitely not with insurance companies. Uh, the burden of payment in the West is shifting from the patient um, to the insurance company and then from the insurance company somewhat to the employer. So I think the employer is expected, is being more and more expected, and, and in some cases is stepping up and, and sort of off, you know, uh, 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 taking on the burden of, of payment uh, onto their own shoulders. Um, because partly because, you know, someone has to, 
And, you know, healthcare in the U.S. is not free. So, so that, that burden of payment is more palpable in, in, in markets like the U.S. versus maybe Canada and the U.K., or certainly much more so than the Scandinavian countries where, you know, the number of psychologists and psychiatrists per capita is much higher and, and people don't have to pay for them. So insurance, the insurance problem is really only a problem in, in markets like obviously the region, but also um, in, in, in the West. With regards to the region, I think the governments here are very keen, on, you know, sort of a top-down government level. I'm not, not so sure on the corporate level, but yes, there is a bit going on there. Very keen on on on, on providing this as as a, as a as a as a as a component of welfare, right? So you think of welfare, you think of, of different forms of welfare and and mental health, especially in the Khalij is in, in the Gulf is 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 becoming more and more so, especially in the UAE and 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 Saudi becoming more and more more so part of a mandate of for these governments to sort of think of top down. Now whether or not they sort of go down the route of, yes, you have to, as an insurance provider, provide coverage or, you know, sort of, for, you know, sort of, I don't want to say forcing, but, but mandating or, or legislating uh, companies to, to offer that to their employees or insurance companies doing it, or they doing it themselves for their, for their citizens. Who knows? But I do know, yeah, there's a lot of interest on, on that front. But again, this is a more of a burden of payment kind of a thing rather than something that fundamentally changes the space. Yeah. All right. I mean, I feel like we could talk about this for a much longer time than we have. Uh, so maybe we'll take it offline next week. Awesome. Faris, it was such a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you so much. It's so nice to speak with you guys again, seriously. Uh, it was uh, refreshing. And thanks for, for uh, allowing me to put, put my thoughts out there. <laughs>